Coffee House Shots is sponsored by NatWest, the bank that's helping small businesses build back better and greener. The transition to net zero could create 130,000 new jobs for small and medium-sized businesses. That's why NatWest is aiming to lend $100 billion in sustainable financing by 2025. Find out more about climate support for businesses at natwest.com slash climate. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth. James, the team that's leading the news gen today relates to a whistleblower for the Foreign Office. Yes, Raphael Marshall, who was a, a Foreign Office fast streamer, has written a kind of 40-page submission to the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, inquiry into what happened with the Afghan evacuation that paints a kind of very damning picture of how it was handled, of kind of chaos with no one who could speak the local languages involved in processing these claims at the London end. Uh, at one point, the Foreign Office and the DFID IT systems, remember those two departments have just been integrated, not really speaking to each other. Seven soldiers sharing one laptop at one point, all of which I think paints a very chaotic picture. And there's also two other things that I think will attract particular attention. One is the accusation that the pen farthings animals were kind of prioritised and that meant that other human beings couldn't have been helped and the the whistleblower alleges that that was on number 10's instruction and then the other thing is an accusation uh, or an implication I think more than an accusation that one of the reasons that the UK government had to make contact with the Taliban government is that uh, advice it had given to a former British soldier who was then running a kind of company in Afghanistan had led to that person being captured by the Taliban. So it is a very damning picture. Dominic Raab, doing the media round this morning, that was meant to be on prison policy, but obviously turned into quite right a debate about the, these revelations, says that, you know, they didn't take enough account of the situation on the ground. I think the picture the, that is painted of chaos, obviously the situation on the ground was not an easy one to deal with, but it raises a whole slew of questions, like um, something that you've touched on in your recent writing, Katie, like why were the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence not coordinating more closely in the run-up to this? Why was more not done in advance? You know, it, 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 is, it is not a pretty picture. Yes, and I think it's interesting that relationship between the Ministry of Defence and the Foreign Office I think was particularly strained when it came to uh, Dominic Raab being there in relation to Ben Wallace. And I think it's fair to say that Liz Truss has a much more amiable working relationship with the Defence Secretary than Raab did. But also in that report, it talks about the Home Office, uh, the fact that, you know, I think it goes beyond one relationship. Uh, you mentioned DFID having rolled in. Lots of departments not really liaising with each other in the way they should be. Where that is uh, down to, you know, clashes or just the fact that things weren't prepared to do that and everyone was caught on the hop. I think also the thing is, because Dominic Raab has already been moved to Justice Secretary, it's lots of damning accusations, but it's got a little bit more of a limited sting than had Dominic Raab stayed in that position. I think if Dominic Raab is still Foreign Secretary, you'd at least be hearing, and I think they have said this before, from figures in the opposition parties, you know, Dominic Raab should consider his position. 
because he is in a different brief, um, that's not where the conversation is going. But I think what is interesting is you read the report, the evidence, and obviously Dominic Rav is saying some of it's not accurate. It's not really down to one person. This isn't a report saying everything is Dominic Rav's fault, even if he doesn't come out of it particularly well. It is ultimately pointing to institutional problems. I think it's pretty damning for the foreign office as an institution. Um, you mentioned the lack of uh, you know, language expertise. Also, old tech systems. Uh, there's also talk about working from home attitude, which meant that there wasn't really, you know, that putting a foot on the pedal at a time of emergency. Now, this is one person's account, but you read some of the details and, you know, it's really hard to imagine they're completely freelancing on this. Look, I think the thing that makes this so devastating is that it is written in very calm and measured tones. I don't think this is someone who is hyperventilating. I also think it is worth saying that this is someone who tried to go through the Foreign Office's internal processes to say how the, the, that things have not been handled well before providing evidence to the committee. So, And I think it's also worth noting that, that Raphael Marshall isn't doing any media today. So this is not a kind of grandstanding whistleblower. I think this is someone who, uh, who from their writing, sounds kind of genuinely shocked by it. I think you add to that the fact that back in their time as a teenager, they are the godchild of the editor of Conservative Home. And the fact that they wrote a few blogs for Conservative Home means it's much harder. Obviously, people's politics can change and civil service needed, but it is much harder for certain people to shake this off for some of an ideological agenda. Yeah, no, no, this is clearly not some kind of, you know, I don't think you can depict this as some kind of anti-conservative person complaining about stuff and you know i really would recommend to listeners just reading the 40 pages the submission because i think as you read it it is more damning because this isn't saying everything would have been fine if dominic raab hadn't want the information presented in a certain way on a spreadsheet which is one of the things it says but it talks about just an institution not working. And I think it's very hard. You know, Boris Johnson is trying to say today that, oh, look, this withdrawal from Kabul was a, you know, a, a great military evacuation effort. It is quite clear from this account that obviously getting people out of a war zone when a government that the UK have been supporting is collapsing uh, very, very quickly it was never going to be easy. I think what this makes clear is that it could have been handled better if the institutions had been better and if there had been more preparation made for the fact that this was a definite likelihood that that, that there was going to be a fairly rapid collapse in country. Now James, I suppose just on that, where does this go? Because I think most people didn't really rate the UK response to Afghanistan in the first place. I think this confirms things. There's some surprising aspects to it, so probably lowers people's view further. But it wasn't exactly viewed as a triumph. Dominic Grubb's already given evidence to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. He could go back. He's also been moved from that position. Is this a one-day story? No, I, I don't think it is, because, I mean, a, first of all, the Foreign Affairs Committee are going to want to take evidence from foreign office civil servants about what happened. And secondly, Boris Johnson is hotly saying, denying the claims about that these animals were prioritised on any kind of instruction from Number 10. So I think, again, I think the Foreign Affairs Select Committee is going to want to, to get to the bottom of that question. And remember, we know that kind of Ben Wallace made quite clear that he was irritated by the time that, that had been spent on farming and these, and these animals. So uh, I, for those reasons, I don't think this is a, I don't think this is a one-day story. I also don't think it should be a one-day story in that there have been clear institutional failings here. But, you know, I think in a reflective moment, 
the government should think, right, we actually, you know, politicians and civil servants alike think, right, we actually need to address this ahead of the next crisis. Now, meanwhile, there's been movement when it comes to the escalating situation in Ukraine. Yes, I think what we see going on there is, is a situation where President Biden is talking to President Putin later on today. I think what President Biden wanted to be able to do was to say to President Putin, look, I have agreed with my European allies a series of sanctions and measures that will be taken if Russia invades Ukraine. And I, I think this is a recognition of two things. First of all, the US is not going to intervene with its own soldiers militarily in Ukraine. So it is, it is heavily reliant on sanctions to deter Russia from its actions. Those sanctions to bite have to be, have to have kind of, you know, not just the backing of the US, but also those of other Western European states. And you see him trying to line that up. I think it's interesting that the head of the CIA has this morning warned that you can't underestimate Vladimir Putin's risk appetite when it comes to Ukraine, which I think is a sign that the Americans really do think that, that Putin might be prepared to do this. And I think that we, we kind of wait. I think Mike McFall, who is the, the former US ambassador to Moscow, it makes the point that you know, anyone who tells you for certain whether or not that they know that Vladimir Putin is going to invade it, it is wrong because Putin himself had not made a final decision. I think that is why the question of whether the West can effectively deter him becomes so important. And I think we are going to see more of this, though, because I think one of the things that, Putin, one of the things that is going on is you know, Putin looks at this US withdrawal from Afghanistan. What was Biden's rationale for the US withdrawal from Afghanistan? But the US needed to concentrate on this existential threat posed to it by China and that great power competition dynamic. And I think you're going to see him saying, right, you want to concentrate on China? Well, I'll try this here and I'll try this there, because Putin is nothing if not a tactical opportunist. And just finally, we still are waiting for more information when it comes to Omicron, the new variant. But we have seen some kickback from backbench MPs. So when Sajid Jab was talking for a new messages yesterday, um, you, you saw Theresa May, who won backbench of the year at Parliamentarian, the Spectator Awards, for, for, for doing things like this, really, um, leading the charge and criticising the government for even the small measures it's brought in. Yes, I, I think this is the, the crucial question here is this. Boris Johnson said to Cabinet this morning, Omicron is more transmissible than Delta was. That's what the evidence says. And he then said we didn't know about disease severity. If you look at the people looking at the South African statistics and you look at what's happened in Norway where they, there was that super spreader uh, event at a party, what's emerging is a picture where Omicron does appear to be more transmissible than Delta. It doesn't appear to cause more serious disease than Delta in the populations that it's infected. And the question is, you know, is it milder? And if so, how much? But the crucial thing to remember is how much milder does it have to be to compensate for the fact that it is more transmissible? And I think that is going to be the thing that begins to exercise people between now and the end of the year, because I think that is ultimately the question that determines whether the government can be confident that the, the hospitalizations caused by this variant would remain within the capacity of the NHS to deal with them. Thank you, James, and thank you for listening.